From Innovation Alley at Marquette University, I'm Chuck Swoboda, and this is Innovators on Tap, a show based on the idea that innovation is about leadership. It's a mindset to find a better way, and ultimately, it's about people. These conversations are designed to allow you to open your mind to new ideas and find ways to put those concepts to work. Together, we can solve big problems and maybe even change the world. How many family businesses can you think of that have spanned five generations? My guess is not many, because they are few and far between. And how often do you think a family business sells to a large global company and the family stays on and keeps running the business, not just in the beginning, but for the next 30 plus years? Imagine trying to maintain that culture that made the family business successful, continue to thrive inside a large corporation. Up until a few months ago, I couldn't name a single company that had pulled this off. But then I met Dick Leinenkugel, who is the president and chief beer merchant of the Leinenkugel Brewing Company. Dick is the fifth generation of the family to run the business, and the Leinenkugel culture carries on many years after the acquisition by Miller Coors. If you're outside of Wisconsin, you may only know of Leinenkugels because of one beer, Summer Shandy, which is a seasonal beer that they only make for about five months each year. During our conversation, Dick took us behind the scenes on how that idea came to be, the impact it has had on the company, and how it was almost called Leidenkugel's Lake House Lemon. I think they made the right choice on the name. But Dick's career extends well beyond beer, first as a Marine Corps officer, and later as Secretary of Commerce for the state of Wisconsin, where he learned the value of leadership by wandering around. He also learned the value of listening and understanding that he may not have all the answers. It was a great pleasure to hear Dick's stories in front of a live audience on Marquette's campus, and I'm excited to share the conversation with you all. There is a saying that innovation is anything but business as usual, and you will see that Dick's story is anything but usual. That's what's on tap today. Enjoy. So, Dick, welcome and thank you for joining me tonight on Innovators on Tap. Uh, Dick and I had a chance to meet for the first time last spring. Come to find out that we had something in common. Uh, I happened to own part of a brewery in Raleigh, North Carolina, and probably 10 years before I met Dick, he had been down talking to that brewery about, hey, is this a craft beer business that we might want to own someday? Unfortunately, didn't buy it. That would have worked out way better for me personally. <laughs> but um, uh, but we had a great conversation about beer, but also about business and a lot of other things. And so I want to start with, I read that you won an air guitar contest mm. while you were a student here that was sponsored by PAPS. And what yeah. we want to know is, what song did you play to win? Oh, there's only one song to win an air guitar contest. And that's Rosalita. Yeah, <laughs> Bruce Springsteen. Uh, so uh, I was actually Steve Van Zant. One of my roommates, Chuck Richardson, was Bruce, and he could he was just nailed it. Then we had Brian Connolly, another roommate who actually was a drummer. Now you couldn't use instruments. So he had a practice drum set that he put boxes over. So it was really just boxes that he was banging on, but he was spot on doing Mighty Max Weinberg. Uh, of course, we had uh, Clarence Clemens on the saxophone and uh, Gary W. Talent on the bass guitar, another roommate. And uh, we walked away with the first prize, which was a, a keg of Paps. We parlayed that into... Uh, two other kegs of lining kugels, and the men from 308 at Strack 2 at 17th and Kilbourne had a big party. 
<laughs> where we did it again. Air guitar, Rosalita. So you did an encore performance that we night? We did. Encore performance that evening. It was, it was unbelievable. Do you think yeah. the encore was better because of the beer? Uh, yeah, no doubt. Yeah, beer makes everything better. Can you give us a little background about how you grew up that you think have kind of shaped some of your beliefs that you're still using today? Yeah, so, you know, first of all, um, a parent, my mother, Mary Lou, who was a stay-at-home mom. And a stay-at-home mom, you know, they work. <laughs> and uh, I make that, I never make that mistake today uh, when I meet a stay-at-home mother or a stay-at-home parent uh, saying, well, you know, you don't work. Uh, well, no, they worked. And, and our mother uh, raised us five children. So I was the fourth and a, the baby of the family for 10 years. So I, uh, before my brother John came along, and by then my two older sisters were out of the house, my brother was out of the house. But my dad was on the road a lot. He was running the brewery and selling beer and meeting with our distributors and customers from across the state of Wisconsin trying to keep the business going. And it was a very tough time in the 60s and 70s for small family-run breweries at that time as the bigger guys got bigger and exerted their scale in the business. So my dad was gone a lot and wasn't around. But every Saturday uh, or every Friday when my dad got back, on Saturday he would go down to the brewery to collect his mail and answer his mail. So my brother Jake and I got an opportunity to go explore the brewery every Saturday and uh, kind of run around and see what was happening and maybe sneak, sneak a beer or two out of the tap. And then on Sunday afternoons, uh, that was always a great family get-together, and family is so much uh, a part of you know what we were and are. And uh, I remember my dad kind of teaching us about the beer industry and what he would do is bring home these different beers from across the state of Wisconsin. So it might be Rhinelander or Chief Oshkosh or Potosi or some of these old legacy breweries. And he would sit us down, pour a little juice glass, blindfold us, and we would have two beers out there plus lining kugels. And he would say, pick out the lining kugels. So we would have to smell and taste the beer and pick out which was Lining Kugels. So, uh, yeah, that's how we grew up. So you come to Marquette and you graduate, obviously successful air guitar career, <laughs> and, uh, and you join the Marine Corps. When you think about the Marine Corps, to me it's a very structured, at least from an outside view, a very structured style of leadership. Does it translate to trying to run a business and do some of the more innovative things you did? So the interesting thing about the Marine Corps is that while I think it appears structured and the military appears structured to people, the thinking of leadership is not. Uh, it is very much uh, collaborative. As an officer of Marines, you are taught that ideas come from every level. And uh, in fact, the best ideas generally come from those enlisted people that are closest to the action. So the Marines have a, a, a great leadership mantra, which is leadership by walking around. You know, you, you walk around, you meet people, you talk to people, you're inquisitive as an officer. Uh, you have to learn to, you know, as, as a leader, they have to want to follow you. You can't just by your position say, this is how it's going to be. 
you know, those young Marines and reaching out to those young Marines, I think, taught me that ideas can come from anywhere. And you have to be open to accepting those ideas. And uh, as a Marine officer, that's really how you're taught. I have never heard it described that way. It's a really interesting perspective. But I hired a lot of people from other companies who were actually uncomfortable with it. That for whatever reason, they wanted the structure to protect them from that. And I just think there's something to getting comfortable with that interaction that makes it so much easier to do everything else about your job. Yeah, and, and no doubt. I, I think... Um Inherently, you are uncomfortable with doing that. Uh, when I became Commerce, Commerce Secretary uh, for the state of Wisconsin, I would do that, and I think people were actually shocked uh, to see the secretary, you know, on the third floor. And um, you know, you you learn about people, and you um, you watch people, and you get to see people in their element, and uh, the fact that you're took the time to come down and meet with them or see them where they're at rather than summoning them, you know, to the fifth floor or whatever floor I was on, um, I think means a lot to people. So fifth generation, Line and Kugel family, and you come back from the Marines, and I think many of us would have expected in the story that you must have gone back to work for the family business, but you didn't. You kind of, you took a detour into the sports marketing business. Walk me through, was there on purpose you didn't go into the family business or is there some reason you didn't want to do it at the time? Yeah, so it was 1984. Uh, I had served my four years of active duty. I paid off my Naval ROTC scholarship. I knew I wasn't going to make the Marine Corps a career. Uh, although I was stationed in Hawaii and my I got orders for my next duty station, which was going to be Coronado, California. So I almost said, geez, three years in Coronado? That sounds pretty good. Maybe I should stay in. Uh, but anyway, um, I had been interviewing with a, a number of uh, companies that recruited junior military officers at that time. I got really close to accepting a job in sales for Procter & Gamble. And uh, my dad came over to uh, Hawaii uh, in uh, December of that year, along with my mother, and I took him golfing on uh, Maui. And we ended up as a two-some, uh, my dad and me, and joined a company, uh, or a two-some, uh, Steve Lesnick and his son, Josh. Josh was a teenager at the time, and they were a two-some, so we hooked up. And uh, over a round of golf, I come to find out that Steve is starting a startup or has a startup company called Kemper Sports Management, connected loosely to Kemper Insurance. In fact, Jim Kemper Jr., the chairman of Kemper, and Steve started the company as a spinoff to run a golf business, to do their tournaments and to run golf courses and to do sports marketing. So Steve said, hey, my executive director of the Women's Kemper Open is uh, wants to move on to other things next year. Would you like to come over and interview for this position? I said, sure. Uh, so that March, I go over and interview. Uh, Steve offers me the position, and I become the tournament director for the LPGA Women's Camper Open. But to answer your question, uh, the company simply wasn't big enough. I couldn't go back to Lining Kugels. My brother Jake had gone back, and we were a family-held company, Family managed, board of directors, we we're all family members, f members of the fourth generation and the third generation of the family who was the chairman, Bill Casper. He was Jacob's grandson. So that's who's running the company. And, you know, it was, it was a small business at the time. 
And they didn't think it would be big enough to have another family member in the business at that time. So I wanted to go do something else that was important to me uh, in business to learn something else. And that's what I did. So you go and finally join the family business. You decide, is it about 1987? Do I have that right? Right. 87, I pitched my brother Jake on establishing a sales rep position in Chicago, working with our distributors, calling on the chains. I really wanted to kind of take the playbook that he had established in Minneapolis, move it to a large urban market like Chicago. That's where I was living with my family at the time and see if I could replicate that. So I, I, did a business case, uh, pitched it to my brother Jake. My brother Jake took it to the board. Board voted to bring me on board. I understand it was not a unanimous vote. Um, do you know I who voted against you? I suspect I do, yeah. yeah. Families are interesting that way. Uh, I was never told, uh, but uh, there could have been more than one vote against me. But anyway, I came on board, uh, doubled our sales in Chicago. So how long from that moment before, I think it's not too long after, the family decides to sell to Miller, right? Do I have that timeline correct? Yeah, so in May of that year of 87, I joined the brewery, start calling on stores and calling on chains in Chicago, Osco and Jewel. And uh, my dad gave me a call in September of that year and said, Dick, we've received this letter from Miller Brewing Company uh, proposing a joint marketing venture. And I said, well, I, you know, that's really interesting, a well-respected company based here in Wisconsin, uh, they're good brewers. I said, you should, you know, take that seriously and, and go talk to them. We had been approached, I think, by other companies in the past. But I think the the family at that time, as I said, third and fourth generations, had not agreed upon a succession plan for the business, bringing the next generation on board. And that's very typical of some family-owned businesses that don't have that. Um, and then also, um, they were looking for an exit. Uh, the beer business was not getting any easier. Uh, small breweries were making pennies on the case. And uh, even though we were successful and uh, felt we could have gone, um, this was an opportunity to join a larger company and one that was willing to invest in the business and keep the Lining Kugel family involved. So in, uh, we announced the deal in November of that year. It was obviously a buyout, not a joint marketing venture, although... Uh, I think it became a good marriage between two partners, and um, now we've been with them over 30 years. So normally, publicly traded large corporation buys a family business, and you know, there's really two different styles. A family business is not run the same way, typically, as a large corporation. And so I, I'm still amazed that not only did you guys stay on, but you're still involved. So walk us through, what was the thinking at the time? Why did they want the family to stay involved, and how are you guys comfortable wanting to be part of this big company? I'm, I'm sure not everybody wanted the family to be involved, but you have to have a few champions in the business. And there was one, Tom Gresk. Uh, there was another uh, guy by the name of Dick Strupp, but also a guy by the name of Leonard Goldstein. And I think they realized the value of having the original founder, especially in a consumer-facing product like Lining Kugels, which... That's the name, right? And, and also representing kind of where we're from, Chippewa Falls, small town, north woods of Wisconsin. It's important to keep that heritage and that story alive. Um, so I think there were some smart people at Miller that recognized to keep the family involved was important. But also 
they were part of a much larger company at the time, Philip Morris. So Miller was only 15% or so of Philip Morris, maybe less. We were less than 5% of Miller Brewing Company, so it really wasn't a risk, and we really weren't material to either company. So I think they had a little bit of freedom in terms of their desire to keep the family involved, and uh, luckily it worked out. We needed the jobs. So you're working for the family business one day, and you know a few months later you're working for a large corporation. What's the difference feel like in those two situations? Well, power and scale of a large business is really interesting. So I, I remember the first time that I met some of the uh, the guys at Miller Brewing Company. And at that time, um, they had things that I, I would have never dreamt of in a, in a small family business. So they had an executive dining room at that time. These things don't exist anymore, by the way. But it was at a certain level, you could go and have a free lunch. And by the way, you could have a beer with your lunch. And then all of the cigarettes were laid out. Uh, by the way, if you wanted a free pack of Marlboros, you could take those as well. So there were certain uh, perks at that company level that you never saw or would have dreamt of at a small family-owned brewery. I came up uh, out of the mindset that my dad said, uh, when you travel, stay in a clean but comfortable hotel that's inexpensive because then you have more money to spend out in the market and spend on your distributors. That mindset isn't necessarily the same mindset that big companies have. So, you know, being part of a small family-owned business, we were taught differently, we were taught things, saw things uh, from a perspective, and I think we always tried to hold on to that, my brother Jake and I, and um, because it, it instilled in us that uh, a desire to be hungry and um, you can get comfortable in a, in a, with a big company and a big business, uh, whereas in a small business, if you have the mind frame uh, or the mindset that you've got you've to sell beer because you've got to make payroll, uh, that puts a little bit of fire in your belly. Which one of those two environments do you think is better to pursue innovation or trying different things? Oh, I, I think the craft guys have proven that. Uh, Chuck, so uh, the Lone Riders of the world and uh, here in Wisconsin, New Glarus and Capital and uh, the breweries here, even even Lakefront, who is now, I think, 30 years in the making. So innovation and staying close to your customer, uh, no doubt, it's at, it's at that level. And I think uh, they have taken it to the, the big breweries. Now, the big breweries have the uh, the ability to scale, and they certainly have the ability to produce at a uh, much lower cost. They can certainly hire a lot more talent in terms of uh, innovation. But in the beer business, it's all about being close to your customer, A, your distributor, and then B, your ultimate consumer, the person that's going to spend $5 on a, uh, a pint of beer. And I think the small guys have proven that they do it a lot better than we do. How big was Line and Kugel's uh, in terms of volume when you sold to Miller? So roughly 80,000 barrels. And how big is it today? Um, we're roughly 900,000 barrels. Okay, that's a lot of growth. And uh, if I remember correctly, 2007, you came out with Summer Shandy. Give us a little background of what were you trying to do and how did you take what's really an old idea 
and reapply it to the situation. Because to me, I think so often in innovation, we think they're only brand new ideas. And so tell us a little bit about this Summer Shandy story. Yeah, so I was really forced to come up with a new innovation, uh, at least in terms of a product, because uh, we had put out to a vote to our Liney Lodge members, should we keep our Berry Vice out as a year-round beer? Berry Vice was our summer seasonal beer at that time. And uh, lo and behold, of the 100,000 uh, email replies we got, 75% said, yes, keep Berry Vice out year-round. So we had to come up with a new summer seasonal idea. We, I, I, I asked the question, what do the Germans drink in the summer? That was my question I asked of the team. So we did a little research, found out they drink a lot more of their wheat-style beer over there called the Hefeweizen, unfiltered wheat. They, um, they drink a beer from Berlin called Berliner Weiss, which is a German sour beer, and they serve it with a little uh, meat of either woodruff or raspberry. And then they, uh, they love this beer style out of uh, Cologne, Germany, called Kolsch, and then they mix beer with lemonade, and they call it a Rodler. I said, well, that sounds really interesting. Let's, let's test a Kolsch, and let's test a Rodler. And back then, when you test, you get with your brewers, your innovation brewers, and you, we started pouring beer and orange juice and lemonade and soda and 7-Up and all these sorts of mixes. And I didn't like any of them because they all tasted like soda. And it wasn't until one of our brewers, Jackie Lauman, came back with the idea of mixing the beer with a natural lemonade flavor at the end of the process. So brew the beer to be a lighter style beer first, but then mix it at the end of the process. Keep the alcohol at about 4.2%, which is where a light beer is, because alcohol does add a lot of flavor, and it adds beeriness, and I wanted it to be a beer, not a soda. And I said, wow, this is it. Let's take it to test. You take it to test, and the way we used to do testing back then is we would go into, I was going to say the Circle Inn, but I think it's called Murphy's now or something. And, uh, you know, we would go in unidentified, and we'd come in with two beers, and we'd have consumers taste them and, and fill out a little, you know, sheet on them. Would you buy this? What do you think of it? Too sweet, too sour, whatever. And But you watch people taste something, and you, you're looking at them, you know, you're not looking at data necessarily, but you're looking at them. You know if they like it or not. And, boy, people like this beer. So I knew we had a winner. I've read some stuff where it says you like to set big, hairy, audacious goals. Yeah. And there's a quote that uh, from a long-term employee that came up to you at one point and said, are you effing nuts after hearing one of your goals? So why do you think it's important to set goals that, frankly, many people would think are impractical or almost impossible to hit? Yeah, so the, the, that specific example, Chuck, uh, was one where I was taking over for my brother Jake. In fact, my brother Jake had announced his retirement. He was introducing me as his, as his successor. So I thought it was important to come into the position as president of the Lining Kugel Brewing Company and say, we're going to build upon the success that we've had. And in fact, I think we can take our brewery and double our business. And, uh, you know, it's a very simple calculation that if you grow 12.5% for five years, you're going to double your business. So that was my goal. Um, taking over in 2014, by the end of 2020, I wanted to uh, double our business. We're not going to achieve that goal, by the way. But I thought it was important to set that marker to kind of let the organization know that we're not going to rest on our laurels, that it's important to have a big, hairy, audacious goal, a BHAG, 
something that can kind of coalesce our thinking, our strategy, our uh, and and say, okay, we're going to grow. You know, we're in this business to grow. Having set some goals, quite a few as a CEO that we didn't achieve. Um, we did have a few of them, but uh, you know, we were always pushing the limits. And and my philosophy was is you rarely achieve something you're not trying to achieve. So let's go for it. And even if we only get halfway there, that's probably better than what we would have gotten if we would have set a lower goal. But is there advice or ideas you have about how you get people comfortable with these types of goals? Well, I think first and foremost, you have to look for those people that are comfortable with uh, achieving those types of goals. So in in the hiring practice, I think it's really important to um, identify those that are not intimidated by that or have the mindset that um, anything is possible, anything is achievable. Um, I'll give a quick example of the woman who runs our Liney Lodge business. When I hired uh, Lindsay Everson, I said to Lindsay, I said, I'm not hiring you to keep this business the same. I'm hiring you to grow this business 3x. So that's going to be our goal. We're going to set the plan to do that. And I wanted to make sure that she was on board and comfortable with that, and she was. So um, I, I think first and foremost, let's hire people and bring people in into the organization. And then as a leader, you have to inspire and, um, and, and be the leader that espouses that. You've talked about people and how critical they are to the business. As you think about developing people or developing your team, are, are there some stories or thoughts that stick in your mind of advice that you can give people? Yeah, I, I think first and foremost, getting out of the office environment is uh, critical. Um, we, in the, in the beer business, have so much data coming at us. Uh, but every time I go to retail uh, and go call on a liquor store or a grocery store or just go in and observe retail, not even the, in the beer section, but outside of the beer section, so what's happening in produce, what's happening in frozen foods, keeping your eyes open, I will always discover something new and, and have an idea um, that comes out of that. So I think getting out of um, where you're comfortable, perhaps, and, and observing and being open to that. I think the other thing, uh, Chuck, is I used to call them wind star moments. And it, it builds upon that idea of getting out of the office. Uh, I had a uh, brand associate working with me, uh, Brendan Noonan, and he was absolutely terrific. And he embraced our brand so much that people ended up calling him Noonan Kugel. But Brendan and I would get out of the office, and back then cell phone coverage wasn't too good, and we'd drive up to our cabin in Eagle River, Wisconsin, or we'd drive from Milwaukee up to Chippewa Falls. So that put us in the car together for four hours in my Ford Windstar. And we would just talk about the business and talk about ideas and bounce ideas off each other. And all of a sudden we'd go, aha. And, and we called those Windstar moments because they happen in the Ford Windstar. But I, I think if you can get outside of your environment, your office environment, whatever that is, and, and get out and think about the business differently, you're going to have success. So what do you know now that you wish you knew earlier in your career? I don't have all the answers. Um, in fact, um, I, don't, I, I have very few of the answers. Uh, I wish I was a better listener. Uh, that's a skill that I'm still trying to work on. I can uh, relate. Yeah. My wife is a fabulous listener. Um, 
there's the you know the Bible story where uh, uh, I forget who it was, but uh, she was always so busy in the uh, in the kitchen and everything that she never had time. And Mary, why doesn't Mary come and help me? And and Jesus says, well, it's because she's spending time with the most important, you know, not doing the dishes or not solving the next problem, but being present with people. And uh, I wish I I wish I knew that you know, very early on in my career, rather than thinking that I had all the answers. Yeah. Wow. You're, uh, so I've spent so much of the last couple of years realizing how much I missed. So I was busy every day working as many hours as I could physically handle as a CEO and how often I wasn't present. The amount of things I missed out on that I was there, but I wasn't present that I would love to do over again. Um, so the beer business, you guys have heard the backstory now. Um, I'm a, an investor in a small brewery that's relative, and in the craft beer business, we're relatively large, uh, about 15,000 barrels a year. So to just put that in perspective, there's about 7,300 breweries in the United States right now. And 15,000 barrels, which to Line and Kugels and to Miller is really small, makes you relatively large. Um, and so there's just an incredible number of breweries battling for share of mind with consumers. What's your sense for where this industry goes and how it turns out? Well, I think first and foremost, um, the consumer, the drinker, um, craft appeals to them for a number of reasons. First, I think it's local. People want to know who their baker is, who their brewer is, who their meat cutter is. I, I, I think inherently that's something we'd like to know. So who makes our beer? Uh, secondly, they're providing a really kind of fun experience. Uh, my daughter, Lindsay, who's in the crowd tonight, just went to a, uh, a new brewery here in Milwaukee, and she was telling me it was a great experience. So I think that idea of experience, and not necessarily the product, but the experience is one of uh, they're kind of taking what used to be the tavern experience and now getting together over a beer and a craft beer at a taproom brewery is a great experience. So... I think it's got some strong consumer ideas going for it that will allow it to um, continue to grow and for new ones to flourish. The business model might be different. It might just be much more local and not going out and doing production and distribution. Because of that, there's a whole new set of problems. But, but Chuck, this industry is continually continuously changing and it changed again over the last two years uh, with the advent of hard seltzers but that was rooted in um, health and wellness which is a mega trend you know people want to think that this beverage that they have in front of them is oh, it's lower carbs lower calorie uh, but I can get yet get that refreshment attribute which I'm looking for but I can, I can now get it in a different flavored product not beer You've seen tremendous business success. A piece of advice for someone that's thinking about going out and trying to take their own innovation and commercialize it or start their own business. Uh, well, I would say, what is it that you want to be when you grow up? I used to ask um, brewers when I would go and meet them when I was doing some of the M&A work with 10th and Blake Beer Company is, uh, you know, I, I got into beer because I'm, I'm a home brewer. I love beer. But I would ask them, well, what is it that you really want to be famous for? Um, and, you know, wh what, not, not, not necessarily what is the end game, but, you know, is there something bigger than yourself that you're trying to build here? 
Uh, so you may have a great idea. Um, so, you know, kind of think about what is it that, where is this idea going to take you and what are you going to be willing to invest to uh, bring that idea to light? You know, both from a um, personal capital and then, uh, you know, your own human capital. What are you going to be willing to put into that? Because if you're going to make it, make it a success, you better be willing to invest that, that capital into it. My last beer question for you is, if we went to your house and looked in your fridge, what beers are in there? There is one remaining can of Leiningkugel Summer Shandy. There are three bottles of Peroni uh, Nostra Azzurro, uh, which I got free at the employee beer store, but I love the beer. Uh, it's got a great Saz hop, and it's just a nicely uh, balanced lager-style beer. I have uh, four bottles of Canoe Paddle Kolsch, and then two bottles of Lining Kugel's Oktoberfest. Wow, what a great... Now, that's my beer refrigerator in Chippewa Falls. Up in Eagle River, it's a little bit more complex. <laughs> All right, well, I'm going to wrap this up. Dick, I, I can't thank you enough for being here. I hope you all realize is there are very few businesses where the fifth generation of the family is still actively involved in running it. Last thoughts you want to offer up? Well, thanks for inviting me back to Marquette University, Chuck, and congratulations on what you're doing to support the university. And I think this idea of innovators on tap and, and the whole idea of Innovation Alley is absolutely tremendous. Um, I think the leadership that Dr. Lovell is uh, providing here at Marquette, and I know um, uh, Dr. Rapella is is part of that as well, but I, I absolutely love the idea of knocking down the silos in higher education, and and there should not be a college of engineering and a college of business and a college of uh, liberal arts and communication. I mean, it should be a university that, because those good ideas and that leadership and those the next idea of innovation is going to come from everywhere. Yeah, and I think I think Innovation Alley is a really unique moment for Marquette to do something that it really is different. It, it, higher ed is probably the most siloed business model I've seen out there. Yeah. And this idea that we have just the College of Business and Engineering starting to think about this as a, as a common thing. It, it makes so much sense when you're on the outside looking in. But it, it's a tradition, right? And people don't change traditions easily sometimes. But it's an amazing opportunity because... Higher Ed's going to change one way or another, and we have the ability to be at the forefront of it. So uh, thank you so much for being here, and uh, let's go have a beer. Cheers. Thanks to Dick Line and Google for joining me on Innovators on Tap and sharing lessons from his oppressive career and the history of an iconic Wisconsin company. I would encourage you to take Dick's advice about the power of observation. If you're going to innovate, you need to get out of the office, observe how people interact with the world, and see firsthand how customers respond to change. And keep in mind that ideas come from every level, and the best ideas often come from those closest to the action. Innovation most often happens when you are out and about, not when you're sitting behind a desk. If you found value in this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you know someone who might be interested, please share the podcast. Our goal is to enable a new generation of innovators and leaders. And exposing more people to the conversations happening in this podcast will help us do just that. 
We are always open to critical feedback. My belief as an innovator is anything you do today can be done better tomorrow. Let us know if there's a guest you'd like us to have on the podcast or an innovation topic you'd like us to take on. Thanks for joining us on this journey. Let's go change the world.